All right, I'm going to start praying if y'all could agree with me tonight. So, Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and through his blood here at a time called the Festival of Lights or Dedication, Hanukkah. It's symbolic. It's very, very significant time. But we come to you in Jesus' name and through his blood tonight. And, Lord, we lift up this time, this sermon that's going to be preached. And, Lord, we ask you collectively that you would come upon me, anoint me, and speak through me everything that needs to be said under an anointing. That even now, your Holy Spirit would move and begin to draw us, every person, the Holy Spirit would move upon us and help us to get focused and locked into what God is saying to us. Help our minds to be clear, not distracted and focused on you, our hearts to be in tune with you. And Lord, we will be good soil for the seed of your word to land upon. And Lord, that you would anoint our eyes and ears, give us eyes and ears of spirit. I ask you to speak through me. And these living seeds of truth, the truth of God's word, to go into our lives, our hearts and our minds. And let the Holy Spirit water those seeds. They'll take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains until Jesus comes. So we ask you that the winds of your spirit carry this out everywhere it needs to go. And that your angels watch over your word. That the enemy will not be able to hinder. Jesus taught us the birds of the air try to steal the seed. That's the satanic, that's the demonic. So, Lord, we take authority and bind up anything of the devil that would try to hinder this sermon, hinder any truth here from getting where it needs to go and accomplishing what it needs to do. We agree together now, and we bind it, and we command it in Jesus' name to back off and go. And, Lord, we pray that this will go out. Let there be a washing of the water of the word in the light of truth. The light of your word shine bright and dispel all the darkness, all the lies, all the deception, all the traditions of men. Everything that's not God, that'll be exposed and driven out. But Lord, let the truth of your word come in. And of course, what Hanukkah speaks of, Lord, let this be a powerful time in you that speaks about consecrating your temple in Jesus' name. We pray all this and we thank you for it. Amen. All right, well, we'll go ahead and dive into this tonight. You'll notice now for River of Life, those that's been here, it seems like every time we... we you know, keep moving forward. This last time we had Brother Benny, we've had him with us many times, but I believe this is probably the most anointed time. And um, he preached such a prophetic word for us. And he talked about being strong in the right and the left hand. And you're going to see how that goes with this sermon tonight. And I believe that for River of Life, prophetically, that we are right on the cusp, on the threshold of really coming into things we've been praying about for years and it has to do with, you know, like a destiny in God. It really does. And that's what Brother Benny felt when he came. He told me, he said, it's time for the tent pegs to be expect, uh, expanded. It's time to grow and see increase and change. And, of course, God gave me that word I shared a few weeks back with you guys as well. But this, is, um, this message goes along with all of that. And Hanukkah means dedication. That's what the, the word means in Hebrew, to dedicate. And so... We'll get into the meaning of it here in a moment, but it's a powerful, powerful meaning. So a couple of things at the beginning, just like Brother Benny was talking about strength in both hands, the priestly, but also the warrior. There's people in the scriptures that they were priests unto God, meaning that they ministered unto him in the tabernacle or the temple. They, you know, would burn the incense. They would, they would take care of the offerings that came and they were prayer warriors and worshipers, and they knew how to minister to the Lord, but also they could be great warriors too. You see where I'm coming from? Now, we know David was not um, Levitical, 
But nonetheless, there was something very priestly about David, wasn't there? He was a worshiper. He was a prayer warrior. But David also was a great warrior. And that's what Brother Benny was talking about. And that's one of the messages I, I want to get into um, with Hanukkah has to do with the priestly and the warrior. So let me give you a couple examples. There was a, a priest. He was the grandson of Aaron. His name was Phineas. And he was, he was alive during those days when Moses was moving through the you know, wilderness with the children of Israel. And they came upon this time, and many of you remember the story about Balaam, that the king of Moab, um, Balak hired Balaam to come as uh, you know, like a, a male witch, a sorcerer, whatever, to put a curse on Israel. Well, after that didn't work, apparently Balaam gave advice to the king of Moab about how to take Israel down. He was basically, Balaam was saying, you can't curse them directly, but if you'll seduce them into sin, it'll bring judgment. And so the king of Moab sent the beautiful women, the Midianite and the Moabite women into the camp of Israel. And as they began to uh, sexually get in sin with them and also to marry them, etc., um, it brought the judgment of God, no doubt. But Phineas was alive during this time. And again, he was the grandson of Aaron. And so he hadn't moved into any type of a significant priestly role yet because his father and grandfather were still in that office. And there was a, apparently a Simeonite and somebody that was of influence. And there was also a Moabite princess of influence that were actually, you know, some believe there was actual fornication going on right there but nonetheless they had come together and the judgment of God was breaking out because of this but Phineas the Bible says he burned with the zeal of the Lord and he took a spear and he ran the spear through both of them at the same time like a skewer and he killed them and because he did that the wrath of God subsided so not only was he a great priest unto the Lord but he was also a great warrior. And Phineas, because he did this, God gave him an everlasting priesthood of peace. Even though he hadn't moved into that role yet, God basically promised him he would move into that role and be a great, he'd be a high priest and that he would be blessed of God. And God blessed him that he would have a covenant, an everlasting covenant of peace, which spoke prophetically of the coming Christ who would be our great high priest and the prince of peace amen all right so that was one story another one was benaniah benaniah was one of my favorite people in scripture but few probably know much about him his name means built up by yahweh he was the son of jehoadiah the chief priest in first chronicles 27 5 we see that david set him as one of his bodyguards david had these um, Carathites and um, Pelethites that were people that were around him that were basically like secret service. They, they were bodyguards, and Benaniah was over them. But if you look at the life of Benaniah, his great exploits were enumerated in 2 Samuel 23, 20 through 22, because he was one of David's mighty men. And the Bible says about Benaniah that he struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors, he also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. He struck down a huge Egyptian, although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand. Benaniah ben went against him with just a club. 
And the Bible says he snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed the Egyptian with his own spear. And it says, such were the exploits of Benaniah, son of Jehoadiah. So Benaniah was somebody, believe it or not, that was also Levitical in his blood. So he was a, de a descendant of the Levites, so he was priestly in that respect, not a Cohen, but he was, he was Levitical. And so he had that priestly blood, and he was somebody that was priestly, but we see here that he was a great warrior for the Lord. He was one of David's mighty men. So David put him over his bodyguards. And even after David died, Benaniah stuck with David all the way to the end through Absalom's rebellion. Whenever another one of David's son tried to prematurely make himself king instead of Solomon, Benaniah stood with David loyally all the way to the end. And when Solomon came to power, Solomon also put Benaniah as a commander-in-chief. He made him over the military or, or whatever uh, military facet that he was over. He put him in a lead role. And so Benaniah was somebody that was priestly, but he was also a great warrior. And then as I mentioned earlier, King David was the same way. So that's the story, which I'm going to get into here in a moment, of the Maccabees that lived 167 years before Jesus. And if it wasn't for what the Maccabees did, they were great. They were priests unto God, but they became great warriors for him. If that had not happened, they would not be able to be a Christmas story because the stage would have not been set for it. I'm going to explain that in just a moment. All right, so John 10:22 in the life of Jesus. The Bible says at that time the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem and that's Hanukkah and as I already mentioned Hanukkah means dedication. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So Jesus thought enough of Hanukkah to come to Jerusalem and celebrate Hanukkah. He was walking through the temple area looking at the menorah and he was um, celebrating with everyone else. So let me give you the quick backdrop about the Hanukkah story. And hopefully I'll do a good job explaining this. But after Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was broken up into four parts. He had four generals. Two of those generals became, their military forces became the strongest. One of them was Ptolemy. It was down in Egypt and Africa in that area that was one of the strongest, it became one of the strongest military forces on the earth during the days of, of the Maccabees here. And also you have the Middle East. So Syria, all that region of the Middle East was under the Seleucid um, ruler. And that was also a superpower of the time. And the thing was that they kept fighting with one another who was going to be the most powerful. Down through the years... One, one of the kings that raised up in that Middle East empire there was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was a real nutcase, all right? He was delusional. He thought himself to be like a god, you know, to be worshipped. So he wanted to go south and conquer that Egyptian-African area but every time he went to war, it was like going back and forth. He never could really conquer them. And after he went down there and was defeated, he was so angry about it 
he came back and he began to kind of turn his rage toward Israel, who really hadn't done anything. But in his delusion, he wanted to make everybody a little Greek like him, and so he wanted to do away with anything that was biblical. So to put it in modern-day terminology, he was basically telling the people of God of that time that it was now illegal for them to go to church, to read the Bible, to pray, to, you know, at that time circumcise their children or anything that would have anything to do with the God of Abraham in obedience to the Bible. It became illegal. So let me just read to you what I have here. Um, he wanted to conquer Israel fully and sought to do away with God's word and culture and make all the Jews become Greek. He tried to prevent things. Now, at this time, circumcision, Sabbath observance, celebrating the feast, keeping a kosher diet, studying Torah, going to synagogue, etc. He was successful at temporarily stopping the temple rituals. So, in other words, they no longer could come to the temple and bring their offerings. He erected a statue in the temple area to Zeus. He also sacrificed a pig on the bronze altar to defile it on purpose. And he took the pigs, he boiled the pig and made a broth out of it. And he poured that over everything in the temple, any type of Torah scrolls, anything. He wanted to completely defile the temple so that there would be no worship in that temple. He desperately wanted them to begin to worship the Greek gods. So he sent his cronies throughout the land of Israel and erected shrines and altars throughout the land to the Greek gods. And the people were forced to offer sacrifices as tokens of their acceptance of this new religion. Unfortunately, some Jews were fine with this transition. But most of them were deeply troubled and stayed totally devoted to God. Those who were disobedient to the Greeks were either tortured or killed or both. Their bodies mutilated and while they were still alive and breathing, breathing, many of them were crucified. Sometimes the wives would be crucified with their sons that they had circumcised. They, they would strangle their sons and they would, they would crucify these women with their children, their dead bodies tied to them around their neck. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about those that were martyred and tortured for the faith. And some biblical scholars say that this reference might include and probably does include some of those that died taking a stand for the Lord during this time in history. So picture it. Epiphanes, he sent his cronies, his military men throughout the land. They built altars to the Greek gods and they would go through that city and find the people, especially the leaders, and say, come out here. You have to sacrifice to this Greek God. You're leaving all that you knew behind, and now you're basically becoming Greek. You're no longer going to read the Bible. Now you're going to worship these Greek gods and do what we do. And if you don't, we're going to kill you. We'll torture your women. We'll torture your children. We'll kill your children, and we'll crucify those that buck up against us. And so this was what was going on. If... Antiochus Epiphanes had been successful in this in a long-term extinguishing of God's people and the culture and have replaced it with his 
the stage, understand the stage for the appearing of Jesus Christ would have been destroyed. And I believe the devil somehow knew that. It seems like the devil always tried to do something right before God was really moving powerfully. Do you remember in the days of Moses, when Moses was born, what did the devil stir up Pharaoh to do? Throw all the baby boys in the Nile. Somehow the devil picks up on what God's doing and tries to stop it. And this was probably exactly what was going on. Now, there was a, a particular land, an area called Moedin. And some of Antiochus's men had come to Moedin. And he said, you guys, here's the altar to the Greek gods. You're going to sacrifice to them. Well, some of the priests were there, the Maccabees. And the leader, Mattahias, the father of this priestly family, was standing there and said, far be it from us that we would forsake the Lord our God and serve other gods. We will not turn either to the right or the left, and we will not do what you say. We will remain faithful to the Lord our God. Well, there was another Jew that was there that decided he would step up and offer the sacrifice because he didn't want the wrath of these military men. Mattahias burned with the zeal of the Almighty just like Phineas did all those years ago and he killed that man right there as a capital punishment which he had every right to do under the law of Moses. This started a war. Did y'all hear what I said? This started a three-year bloody war. And I want you to think about the miracle of this because Mattahias and his family that were later nicknamed the Maccabees which means a hammer they were just a ragtag little army that had no idea how to fight. You understand that? These were guys. Here's what their life consisted of. From the time they were little boys and circumcised and grew up, they were learning how to, you know, offer the animals as a sacrifice on the bronze altar, how to burn the incense in the holy place. That's what they knew. And now they are having to rally together and fight a Syrian army which was one of the world's superpower military forces of that day. And they won. You understand? I mean, this was a miracle. And so the, the Metahiah said, those that are for the Lord, come rally to us. And so people began to rally to him and they formed this little ragtag army very similar to the Gideon's army. Remember Gideon, like 300 men? And God, for three years, there was this war going on where the Syrian military forces were coming in, but the Maccabees and their little ragtag army would fight them and push them back. And after three years of doing this, the Maccabees were able to completely push back the Syrian army and win. And this was in 164 BC when it was finally completed. And when this priestly group finally pushed them back, it was over. They went to the temple, but the temple had laid in ruins, so to speak. When I say that, I don't mean destroyed, but just defiled and unused for three years. And so they had to go in there, and what they did was the altar that had a pig sacrificed on it, they didn't even want to try to consecrate that thing. They just simply took it away and destroyed it. He rebuilt a brand-new bronze altar again, and they dedicated it to the Lord. They went in and removed the statue of Zeus, they took away anything that was defiled and they began to deeply consecrate the temple again unto God. And there was this little bottle of oil. Now you have to understand how particular 
the, the Kohen, the priest, were about everything. To have oil that was worthy of being burnt in the menorah of the holy place, okay? It had to be going through a very kosher process where the priest watched and they made sure everything was right. It was also the first pressing of the oil. It was a big deal. In other words, you couldn't just go in your cabinet and say, well, let's just use this oil, you know, because they wouldn't accept it. It had to be done a precise way. And it had a mark on it and everything. And they had one vial that they found still in the temple of the oil to use in the menorah. It would have only been enough for one day. That was it. But they thought to themselves, well, we'll go ahead and use it anyway. And we'll begin the process of making more oil. And so they poured it into the menorah and they lit the menorah. And they come in the next day and it's still burning. And they come in the day after that and it's still burning. And that this went on supernaturally for 10 days. I mean, eight days, I'm sorry. And so eight days, that's where we get the eight days of Hanukkah, that, that menorah stayed lit for eight solid days, which gave them time to make more oil that they could, you know, relight the menorah like they've been doing. So that's where you get the concept of the eight days. Um, but anyway, I, I want to focus in this sermon, though, because this reminds me of a couple stories in the Bible. Number one, it reminds me of how Phineas burned with the zeal of God to eradicate the sin out of the camp. And that pleased God so much that the plague stopped and God promised Phineas an everlasting priesthood. With that same zeal, the Maccabees, they, they pushed back that army and they fought for the Lord and they had a zeal for him. And a couple other stories come to mind, but I think that you guys know like Gideon, for example. I mentioned earlier, but how in the world did Gideon with 300 men defeat that huge, massive army? You guys remember reading the story. If I remember right, something like 100,000 men or something. There were tents as far as the eye could see of military forces. And Gideon with 300 men destroyed that army. It was supernatural. So this was the same thing with the Maccabees. And what sticks out to me in this story more than anything, and I've always felt a real connection with the Hanukkah story, with my, my calling, I guess, because I have such a heart for revival. And I think about many times, if you look through revival history, which I've really studied revival history, I love it. I've studied, for example, you know, Wesley and Finney and the Cambridge Revival, etc. And we've done sermons in here, so you guys are familiar but the Hanukkah story goes along with these type of revival stories. I mean, there was a group of people that were totally sold out to God. They were desperate, but they lived in a wicked time. But they would press into God in prayer and fasting and basically in that spiritual warfare and revival would break out. And it's very connected to the Hanukkah story. But I love that. Uh, I'll tell a quick story about this. So there was a man by the name of Edward Miller. And Lila Turhune wrote about this story in her book, Cross-Pollination, which many of you are familiar with it. But Edward Miller was a, a man that was a missionary in Argentine, uh, Argentina, and it was during a time when Argentina was closed pretty much to the gospel. It was a really dark time there. And as a matter of fact, a lot of people viewed Argentina as kind of a, like a real spiritually dead place and a very difficult place for missionaries. And Edward Miller went there, and he said, man, 
he did everything that you're supposed to do. I mean, he kept witnessing and doing everything, but he could not see one person get saved. He said it was so difficult. The heavens were brass, and he was seeking the Lord, and he said, Lord, if you don't do something, I'm just going to have to leave this place and go somewhere else because, I mean, nothing's happening. It's, it's dead. And the Lord spoke to Edward Miller and told him, I want you to begin to pray, and I want you, just like somebody would work 40-hour weeks, I want you to give me eight hours a day that you'll pray. Just like you would go to work, nine to five, I want you to pray for the, you know, the Argentinian people. And so he began to do that, but he felt, you know, because the other missionaries and other people were like, you're wasting your time, you need to be out doing stuff. But man, prayer is not a waste of time, all right? Plus, plus he had heard from God about it. But others were giving him a hard time, and, and he, he told him, look, God spoke to me, this is what I'm doing. But after a period of time, nothing seemed to be happening and he finally told the lord he said look if you if something doesn't happen i still feel like i'm wasting my time because nothing's happening so by such and such date if something doesn't happen by then then i'm going to have to pack up my bags and leave because it just seems so difficult here well as that date approached there was a, another missionary who had a backslidden son that was really away from god not doing good and came to see Brother Miller, and he was telling him, listen, help me out here, talk to my son. And this, this young man was very hard. But as Edward Miller began to talk to him, the Holy Spirit fell on this boy, and he really broke, and he really got things right with God. It was powerful. And after that encounter, that man left with his son, and God spoke to Edward Miller and told him, see, I can bring them in. I can bring the harvest in anytime I want to bring the harvest in. It's not your responsibility to make something like this happen. And then the Lord said, get back to prayer. So he said, okay. So he goes back to praying. After a period of time, Edward Miller was just, he was really desperate because it seemed so challenging. It seemed like the heavens were still brass. The, the Argentinian people were just not interested. And he decided he, he felt like God led him now to invite a few other people to come pray with him. And so the people that ended up showing up was a timid man and his wife. The, the wife was very timid. He was somewhat backslidden as far as he wasn't really on fire for God or anything. And then there was another person there, another young lady. So a man and a woman, their husband and wife, and another young lady and Edward Miller. And they were praying, and God told Edward Miller, tell the people that unless they want to stay here from, like, I think it was 8 o'clock to midnight, if they didn't want to stay the whole time, just don't even bother showing up. And Edward Miller thought, man, you know, already it's hard to pray as it is. I invite people, and these are the only people who are going to show up. And then on top of that, God's telling me to tell them that if you're not willing to stay till midnight, don't even bother coming. So Edward Miller thought to himself, well, I'm going to be alone again, you know, praying, going after God. But he told the people, God told me, if you don't want to stay just till midnight, just don't even come. Well, those three people showed up, and night after night, they prayed. And as they prayed, Edward said, man, it still felt like the heavens were brass. It was very difficult. And after they would pray for those four hours or so, he would ask them, and he was kind of desperate. He'd be like, did anybody see anything? Anybody feel anything? Did God speak to you? anything i don't care if you don't think it's god just tell me you know and nobody and nobody ever said anything until this one night 
And he kept on prodding them. And this young lady that was there, not the married couple, the other young lady, she said, well, she said, I did feel like God told me to do something, but I, it seems really silly. And I, to be honest, I'd feel embarrassed. And you got to understand the frustration to Edward Miller at this point. So he's like, young lady, I don't care how stupid it is. <laughs> if God told you to do it, you need it. And she said, well, I feel like God told me to go strike the table, but that's silly. And you, you guys remember in the Bible, let me go back here. Do you remember the story where Elisha, he took the king and he told the king, he said, I'm going to put my hand on your hands and I want you to shoot this arrow out this window. And the king kind of felt stupid, but he did it. He shot the arrow out the window. And then Elisha gives him these arrows and says, now I want you to strike the ground with these arrows. And so the king being so dignified, he felt stupid. So he only struck the arrows a couple times. Didn't even really mean it, you know. And Elisha got angry with him. And Elisha told him, said, you know what? God's going to give you victory toward the east. And you're going to face a military force. But you only struck the ground three times. And so you're only going to win three battles. If you had kept striking the ground like you should have, you would have totally annihilated this enemy. So there's something to these prophetic acts, okay? And so Edward Miller was like, listen, I mean, you got to understand at this point, he was just straight up desperate. And he said, listen, we're going to strike that table tonight, okay? That's going to happen. And he said, God told you to do it, so here's what we'll do. I'll go first. I'll hit the table. Then they'll hit the table. You can go last. And so she did. And they said that they struck the table and nothing happened. But as soon as she hit that table, he said it had been so dead and so dry for so long, for years. He said that the Holy Spirit blew in that place like on the day of Pentecost. I mean, it was a suddenly. The Holy Spirit hit that place. He said he felt like he had kind of collapsed into what he described to be like liquid honey. And uh, Lila said, well, why are you describing it like honey? And he said, because it was thick. The presence of God was so thick. He said it was thicker than just water. And he said it was like the glory of God came in. Something happened there that day something broke in the spirit and um, Edward after that time things began to change for him as a missionary and so they started seeing some people get saved now something broke and as they as people started coming in he started a Bible school but there wasn't too many people in it okay but I think maybe around 50 or so that were in this Bible school and he would have like the young men sleeping in these dorms and, and young women in other, other dorms. Well, there was this young man. And how many knows that God seems to always pick these type of people? The one person that everybody else would be like, well, that'll be the one that, you know, God would never pick. God will pick that guy every time. Well, anyway, God picks this young man. I don't remember his name, but he was extremely uneducated. He had never been to school or anything. And he, he would go out in the evening out in the woods by himself and pray and this was years later after this event okay they had had the bible school things were going good but this young man was out there in the woods praying and an angel of the lord appeared to him now just like in the bible he got scared half to death i mean you're out in the woods and this angel appeared and he's in the presence of god off this angel was so strong he got scared so he, jumped, he takes off running as fast as he could back to the dorm and the angel was right behind him. And, and he starts beating on the door and they locked him out, man. So he's beating on the door 
and one of the guys got up and, and let him in, and he ran in, and as soon as he ran in, the angel of the Lord came in too. And the people that were there said it was, again, a suddenly. They said it was like that place, there was nothing significant, it was just a normal night, but when the angel of the Lord came in, they said it was like the presence of God in an awesome, awesome way came in like that. And all of them, it was just like, oh, I mean, it just, they kind of just collapsed. But something broke in that atmosphere. And here's what happened. The Holy Spirit moved on the group of people with a burden, I mean, a deep intercessory burden for, the, for Argentina. I mean, strong burden. And Edward Miller said, it's not something that you could do if your life depended on it. It was something God did. God put on them a burden of intercession for Argentina. And so the, the younger people that were there began to weep. Now, let me tell you about this young man. This young man that was, was totally uneducated, that the angel appeared to, he was on the floor and he was having this encounter with God. And he was simply saying what was happening. And he was having this prophetic experience where God was taking him in a vision. And he was looking down at different cities that God was taking him to. And these different cities were places that God was going to pour out his spirit in an awesome way before Jesus came. Now listen, because it gets more interesting than this. When he went, and this is all over the world, and Edward Miller said that it was kind of difficult because they were scrambling to try to document what he was saying, but what made it even more difficult was, was that it was going kind of fast, but on top of that, this young man who's totally uneducated, mind you, when he would be shown a certain region, he was saying the name of the city and the region and what was going to happen, but he was saying it in their dialect, in their language. Nobody could do that. You know what I'm saying? And this was an uneducated young man. He certainly didn't know all these languages. But Edward Miller said he distinctly remembered that he said Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which Catherine Coleman had a really powerful ministry there. Remember that? And Toronto, Canada. The outpouring of the Toronto Revival. Those are the only two he said that he really remembered. But this young man was going and seeing all these moves of God that were going to happen from that time which if I'm, I think that that was in the 40s when this was happening, I think. But between that time till the time Jesus came. But Edward Miller said the Holy Spirit was on these young people in this Bible school so strong. He said that people would lay there weeping under the burden of sin of Argentina. And they would be asking for God's forgiveness. Not only for their sin, but for the sins of Argentina. And he said he did not think that you could weep as long as they were weeping. And he didn't think that you could cry as much as some of them cried. Because he said literally without exaggeration. He saw some of them laying there weeping for so long that their tears had formed a little trail and created a puddle. And he said he didn't even think you could weep that much. And that these young people were under such a burden. But it was after that at some point in time they, this went on for weeks. And I don't remember the exact amount of time, but at the end of it, he said it was like it was done. And God spoke to them, and he said, the lion of the tribe of Judah has roared over Argentina. And when he said that, he said it just it, like it turned off. 
the burden for prayer was done. Why? Because they had accomplished it. And then we have the story, I'm moving quickly now, that, that years later, it wasn't very many years later, I think this was in the 40s, now Tommy Hicks came in the 50s. And Tommy Hicks had a major move of God there where it affected Perone, the president, it affected many people. And all of that was setting the stage. Now listen to this. A few decades after that, what happened? The great Argentine revival. God spoke to Carlos Anacondia to begin to hold these crusades. And during the mid to late 80s, early 90s, the Holy Spirit moved so powerful in Argentina that literally whole areas would come to know Jesus when Carlos would set up his tent. Whole areas. They said that there were so many people getting saved in Argentina during that time that the, the new birth rate of people being born again, it, it totally surpassed the natural birth rate of the nation. Because so many people, they had to ha some places had to have church open 23 hours a day and people in shifts because so many people were coming into the kingdom. Let me tell you, it all started, it all started with a missionary who was desperate and wouldn't give up in prayer. And that reminds me of this awesome, awesome story with Hanukkah. These guys were faithful to the Lord in a time when their lives were threatened. And the prophet Daniel prophesied that there would come a time that God would supply a little bit of help. And a lot of Bible scholars, I'm included, believe that this was foreshadowing Antiochus Epiphanes and that God would raise up the Maccabees to give them a little bit of help and sustain things. But God had to do that because there had to be the stage set for the coming Messiah. Y'all know what I'm talking about. There had to be an Israel. There had to be a Jerusalem. There had to be a Jewish people. There had to be a temple. Things had to be a certain way for Jesus to come. And so God raised up these Maccabees to push back the Syrian army and gave them an awesome victory. So here's the warning, and I want to close with this. The Hanukkah story, the warning is this. And next week I'll deal with the oil and the light, the fire, the anointing and all that next week. This week I want to deal more with the temple part. But the warning of Hanukkah is this. We're living in a time, just like the Maccabees, where there's a lot of wickedness around us. And unfortunately, in the days of the Maccabees, there were people that were comfortable with assimilating into the Greek culture and the worship of the Greek gods and basically becoming Greek. So in other words, there were people that were God's people, but they were okay with compromise, backsliding but the Maccabees and Metahiah said far be it from us that we would turn either to the right or to the left but we are going to be faithful to the Lord and to his word we're living in a time all around us guys and you know this as much as I do where there's a lot of compromise we're living in a time where deception is out there I know that you know this, but I want you to think about this for a moment with me. Jesus said very first, watch out nobody deceive you when dealing with the end times. The Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy 4.1, there would be doctrines of demons, people falling away because of doctrines of demons seducing spirits. In other words, deception. There's going to be a lot of deception. I believe it's already out there, all around us. 
But you know what one of the great aspects of this deception is? That people don't have a love for the truth. Remember in Thessalonians, because they didn't have a love for the truth, they were given over to a delusion. But here's the thing. Also, the deception is this. I'm kind of pulling like pieces of puzzle, a puzzle together for you right now if you'll follow me. Another aspect of this deception is people didn't want to hear the truth. They, they wanted to gather to themselves teachers that would just tell their itching ears what they want to hear. Are you hear what I'm saying? And so people that only want to hear certain things that make them feel good. And there's even emerging a movement that has been going on now for a little while that teaches that God doesn't even judge anymore. There's no more such thing as judgment or wrath or anything like that. Man, there, nothing could be further from the truth. But people don't want to think about that. They don't want their feelings to be convicted. They, they don't want to, uh, anybody to tell them something that makes them feel uncomfortable. And that right there is breeding ground for the deception that's going on. Just tell me what I want to hear. And keep getting preachers that'll do that. But I want to know the truth. And I know you do too. And sometimes the truth is going to be convicting. Sometimes the truth is not going to make me feel good. Because it means I need to change. I need to repent to something. But in the days of the Maccabees, there were people that were assimilating. They were becoming like the evil sinful world around them. We're living in a time that all around us, it seems like there's people that'll say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I go to church, etc., etc." But there's no marked difference in their life apart from the sinful world. People should be able to look at us and see that there is something very different. We talk different. We act different. We don't dress like the sinful world. There's something about us that is distinctively different than this evil world. And that's the warning, I think, of Hanukkah is this, that we're not going to assimilate into this sinful world and become like the world. I've gone through it so many times, you guys know, but it grieves me because sometimes people go to church and all that, but the way they live, I mean, you would have no idea that they, they were Christians. They cuss just as much as everybody else at work. They, you know, women will dress real seductively. They carry themselves like the world. They, the sinful entertainment of the world, the going out and partying and, and getting drunk or getting high or sleeping around or whatever, but yet they go to church and say, I'm a Christian. Or they're living, um, you know, as boyfriend and girlfriend, living together, having sex outside of marriage, still going to church. So there's no marked difference in a lot of places right now. It, it, is, it is a major deception. And so here's a couple things, and like I said, I want to close with this, but this is a time, number one, for rededicating our lives unto the Lord and deeply consecrate ourselves unto him, since we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the Maccabees had to go in, and they had to get that idol out, and they had to purge that temple. This is the time to be thinking about, look, is there any idols in me? Is there any compromise in me? Is there areas in my life that's worldly that needs to change that the Lord would pull that out of me and God would begin to sanctify this temple again. And the time to go through your home and begin to make sure everything in the home is okay with the Lord. 
Is there things that's beginning to come into the home that shouldn't be? Get that stuff back out and reconsecrate your house to the Lord. Number two, it's a time to seek the Lord for major breakthroughs in warfare. Are there stubborn situations that need to change? Like in the days of the Maccabees or Gideon, we see that God can give great breakthroughs in very dire situations. So this is a time that, that I look at as I'm reminded of how God used the Maccabees, how, he, how God used people like Gideon. And I started thinking to myself, or how God used Joshua, that there were supernatural victories that should not have happened. The walls of Jericho, they, that was something only God could do, okay? And I think about these victories in war. Are there things in your life where you need a victory and it seems like it's been stubborn? This is the time to press in. Number three, just like the Maccabees had to do, and Elijah had to do on Mount Carmel. Do you remember when Elijah, you know, called down fire and he killed those 450, I think it's 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asher, whatever. But there was all these false prophets there. And what does the Bible say? He had to rebuild the altar that Jezebel tore down. Elijah had to rebuild the altar. Same thing with the Maccabees. They had to get rid of the defiled old altar. They had to rebuild a new altar and consecrate unto God. This is a time to be thinking about this right here. How is our prayer lives at home? How is our time in the Word of God? Are we growing? Are we learning new things? Is God speaking to us? Is our intimacy with the Lord? And Steve Hill used to say this all the time at the Brownsville Revival, and it's true. If there was a time in your life you were closer to the Lord than now, you've backslidden. So this is a time to say, Lord, I need to rebuild the altar again in my life. And I'm asking you to send your fire back again, like in the days of Elijah. I'll rebuild the altar. That's my job. But I'm asking you to send your fire on that altar. And let God again set you ablaze, that you burn for him. Number four, this is the time of tipping the scales of justice. The Lord promised us in Luke 18 that even an evil judge would give a persistent widow justice. How much more will our Father in Heaven give justice to His children? Over this last year, we've sown much into the kingdom. Has Satan stolen anything from you? Has it seemed like things have not been the way they need to be? Things have come up. Listen, this is the time for the scales of justice to be shifted in your favor. And let me give you a strategy. In Romans 8, the Bible says, and I've mentioned this earlier in the service, but I want this to be in the recording. The Bible says in Romans 8 that there are times that we, in our weaknesses, we don't really know how to pray. And I can attest to that, that there's times I've prayed about something, and I've prayed about something, and I've prayed about it again to the point to where I finally came to the realization, I don't know what else to say about this situation. But the Bible says in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness in that he will pray through you. The groans, the travail. And so what can happen is the Holy Spirit, as you pray, the Holy Spirit will pray through you in tongues. He will pray the perfect will of God in that situation. Even in the courtroom, you go before the throne, before the very courts of heaven. You're needing justice. You're needing something, the scales of justice to tip in your favor here. And you've prayed about this and prayed about it and prayed about it. 
And you've gotten to a point to where you're like, I don't know what else to say. But you can say, Holy Spirit, pray through me. And the Holy Spirit will pray through you the perfect will of God. And it'll be so precise, it will be exactly what needs to be prayed. And it can tip the scales in your favor too. And number five, this is just something on your own, but Psalm 30 is many times read during Hanukkah. And there's a beautiful poem which I'll read to you here in a moment. But I'll talk next week about the oil and the fire and, you know, the Holy Spirit and all that. But I want us to think about tonight, is there any area of our lives where we need to reconsecrate and purify our lives? Is there any area where we've, we've become more like the sinful world around us? You know, if we're not careful, we can get desensitized. I remember that um, Rick Joyner wrote a book, probably one of the most life probably one of the most life-changing books I've ever read called The Final Quest. But in it, he was saying that there would be, he had this vision, these demonic spirits that could attach themselves to an entertainer. And understand, he got this vision back many years ago, I believe before the revivals of the 90s. I believe it was. But he saw that demonic spirits that were really powerful could attach themselves to certain entertainers or certain movies or certain things and it was like they would release out like a slime that would fling on all the people there. And it would like some kind of an evil baptism, if you will. But it was like the people were being desensitized. And I've seen them. I've seen entertainers through the 90s, through the 2000s, and through this last eight years. I've seen entertainers, man, that they have a satanic anointing on them. And you can feel it. But people, even people call themselves Christians, but they have no discernment. And they, they go to these concerts, they go to these things, and, and you know that it's defiling them, but they don't even know. They don't even have any clue about it. Look, this is a time in the last days that we're living that we better make sure that we're walking close with the Lord, that we have a strong prayer life, that the altar is strong in our lives because we're going to need discernment in these latter days. And we're going to need the strength the Holy Spirit gives us, okay? All right, so I'm going to read this poem and close out. But this is a poem called Ma'usur. This is um, Stronghold Rock is what it means. And this is interesting because it seems to be prophetic. The first part of it says, Rock and fortress of my salvation to you, it is fitting to give praise. May the house of my prayer be built and there will be, there will, I'm sorry, there we will bring an offering of thanks. When you prepare a place of slaughter, for the blaspheming enemy. Then will I lift my voice with a song of dedication on the altar. The second part, my soul was saturated with tribulations. And this is talking about in the days of Egypt, okay? When the children of Israel were in Egypt. My soul was saturated back then, or saturated with tribulations. My strength was sapped with sadness. My, li my, my life was embittered, <coughs> excuse me, and with difficulty of enslavement. To the kingdom of the calf or Egypt. But with his great hand, he extricated the beloved treasured nation. The army of Pharaoh and all of his descendants sunk like a stone in the depths. So, in other words, God brought great deliverance out of Egypt. Then the third part He brought me to the sanctuary of his holiness. This has to do with the Babylonian exile. But there too I had no rest. The oppressor, Nebuchadnezzar, came and exiled me. 
For I had worshipped foreign gods, and the poisonous wine of sin did I taste. I had barely left my land when the end of the Babylon, Babylonian exile came with Zerubbabel, and at the end of the 70 years I was emancipated. So in other words, God remembered Israel in Babylonian captivity and brought them back to rebuild the temple. Number three, cut down the towering cypress. This was in the days of Esther. Remember Mordecai and, and uh, Haman? Cut down the towering cypress of Mordecai. The Agagite son of Haman requested. But it has become an entrapment for him. And his arrogance was silence. You raised the head of Mordecai. And the enemy, Haman, his name you erased. His many sons, his possessions, you hanged on the tree. So remember the story? The very gallows that Haman built, he ended up, him and his sons were hanged on them. But they were meant for Mordecai. Then the next one is about the story of Hanukkah. The Syrian Greeks gathered upon me in the days of the Hasmoneans, that's the Maccabees. They broke through the walls of my towers. They defiled all the oils of the temple. But from the remnant of the flask, a miracle was wrought for the roses, Israel. The men of wisdom, the sages, instituted eight days of song and praise to remember it. And finally, the last part of this poem, I believe is prophetic and hasn't happened yet. Unleash your holy arm and bring near the final salvation. Avenge your servants from the evil nation. I believe this is foreshadowing the Antichrist. And the one world government. For it has been too long already and there is no end to the days of evil. Repel the red one which may speak of the Antichrist. And raise up the seven shepherds. And this has to do with the coming Messiah. So this is how God has intervened. When Israel was in bondage in Egypt, God sent a deliverer. He brought them out. When they were in Babylonian captivity, God remembered. And he brought Israel out that they could rebuild the temple. In the days of Esther, when Haman wanted to wipe out the Jews... God remembered and turned the whole thing around. In the days of the Maccabees, again, the enemy wanted to come in and wipe them out, but God remembered and gave them victory. In the same way, in the end, God's going to give us victory. Amen. All right. So I want to pray with you guys tonight, those that want prayer. But I want you where you're at to think for a few moments. We can put on some worship here briefly and we can pray, but I want you to think about, we should end recordings. I want you to think about in your life are there areas in your temple that you need to reconsecrate your life again are there areas where the altar of prayer needs to be rebuilt and things need to be as they used to be again that there's a fresh revival coming back 